Hi, Gary. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining uh, the Working Fitter Club on this on this podcast uh, to talk about uh, your experience and DRB. So to, to, to break the ice, uh, could I please ask you to tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, well, I graduated from Wharton in a long time ago, <laughs> and uh, for the big part of my career, I was a fixed income salesman at salesperson at at Solomon Brothers. I subsequently went on to become a mortgage specialist, and then uh, I ran the mortgage department at Merrill Lynch for a while, and the asset backed finance department. Uh, I spent some time working at uh, Bear Stearns in uh, in a kind of an investment management role and started Westside Advisors uh, about 18 years ago. And Westside Advisors is primarily a mortgage derivative hedge fund. Exciting. Um, and uh, what about DRB? What, can you tell us about the, the history of, of DRB and basically how did you move from, from being a hedge fund manager with uh, expertise in mortgages to um, student loans? Okay. Well, uh, DRB, Darien Royden Bank, started, was founded in 2006. Uh, the holding company, uh, Alcar, which uh, I put together with, with some uh, mutual acquaintances, we, we took over the bank in 2010. And originally, our premise was to utilize our mortgage background and expertise uh, to develop the bank franchise. Um, interestingly enough, though, uh, I, I always had the idea of getting involved with refinancing student loans when we first took over the bank, but I was a little concerned about asking the regulators to allow us to go into that area right from the beginning, uh, because even though we were going to get involved with super prime uh, refinancing of, of, of student of borrowers, um, I felt that the regulators might be concerned about us getting involved with student loans because uh, headlines of student loans at all, over the last couple of years had had significant ne negative connotations to it. And the genesis for that really came from um, uh, actually having student loans myself. When I was in charge of the uh, asset-backed finance department at Merrill Lynch, I actually started the department there, and we got involved with securitizing things like uh, automobile receivables and credit card receivables, and I—that was typically what was being done on the street at the time. But I got involved in doing more esoteric stuff, like land loans, recreational vehicles, mobile homes. And uh, my job at the time was really to look at all different asset classes, and I think of it in terms of factoring that could really be taken to the capital markets. And one of which I looked at was student loans for two reasons, um, and this was really in the mid '80s. Uh, unfortunately, to myself somewhat. But uh, I had student loans, and I had some friends that had student loans that were really in the arts, people that were kind of trying to break into Broadway or music things, and, and they were borrowing money to pay off their student loans, and we were all had the same rate. So I said, there's something wrong with this, that my income level is significantly higher than theirs, that I'm actually lending them money, and we're all paying the same rate. So I thought that there was really there was an opportunity there. There there was something amiss there, and but at the time where the government was pricing loans and where absolute yield levels were in the marketplace, 
there really wasn't an opportunity for an arbitrage at that point. Uh, but it always stayed in the back of my mind that this was something that was kind of um, off-base, and at some point there could be an opportunity. And when I was looking into buying the bank, I, I saw that the marketplace really um, uh, afforded that opportunity to do that. Quite frankly, it was before either any of the known competitors in the marketplace now were even in the market that we really had this idea to go forward with doing something like this. We waited till 2013 uh, to do it uh, because we really had to de develop the infrastructure of the bank and, and get the regulators comfortable with everything we're doing, doing th things a little bit differently. Uh, it took some time to kind of uh, get the regulators comfortable with it. And so uh, I think we did our... Our first loan was the middle of 2013, uh, and I might add, the person who we did the first loan to was the boyfriend of a woman that I'd done a field application project with at Wharton. Um, wow. Was our first, yeah. I, I had done a field application project, a couple of field application projects for at Wharton. Uh, one of them was involved with uh, uh, the Professional Beach Volleyball League. One of them was involved with uh, when the Nets were moving from from uh, New Jersey to Brooklyn, what the name of the, the team should be. And then also the other project was uh, to sell. Uh, my brother wrote a, writes murder mystery novels, and we self-published it, and we wanted to distribute it online. So we worked with a group of students at Wharton who were great in helping us uh, develop that model. Actually, the book wound up selling about 100,000 copies online. Wow. Made the, made the Amazon, I think at one point it was like 23 on Amazon, their listing of books. And subsequently he was, uh, because of that, uh, he was uh, uh, mainline publishers uh, negotiated to buy rights to his subsequent books. And so... Uh, a woman that had worked on that project, when we started to develop the student loan program, I said, okay, I need to talk to some people that can give me an idea of, of how to go about doing, reaching out to the proper uh, cohort. And uh, this woman, Jessica, I emailed her, and she said, well, my boyfriend, who I think is now her husband, um, has a student loan, and so he wound up being our first borrower. But we did our first loan... Uh, we did our first loan in August of 2013, and we crossed a billion dollars in uh, – uh, no, we did our first loan in June of 2013, and we crossed a billion dollars last August, and we were the fastest of any uh, player in the marketplace to reach the billion dollars in student loan refinancing. Um, and actually, just uh, the beginning of this month, we did our sixth securitization – it was rated double A by Moody's. Um, we've done about a billion six in originations now. And that deal was, interestingly enough, with all the turmoil taking place in the marketplace about online lending, uh, we, we placed that. We were two times oversubscribed, and we had to stop taking orders because when you get people to, to give you an order or do work on the loans, if they do work, they spend the time and energy doing work on it, and then they wind up getting no loans. They're, they're, you know, it's obviously upsetting to them. 
So we stopped taking orders when we were two times oversubscribed. So, uh, Gary, this is the, this is actually impressive. Um, I wanted to ask you this: <clears throat> the the from 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 when I look at the student loan market, I see mainly three kind of actors. I see, um, of course, the the students. I see companies such as yourselves, like the the, the originators. I want to say, and then I think uh, the investors. Um, so, and when I look at this market, I see it as as, as a by now, it's a very, I, some people want to call it popular, other use the word competitive market. There's a lot of players and um, sometimes um, it, it can be uh, almost a little bit confusing. So I wanted to ask you, how, how is this DRB different from the competition? Um, and what is its unique offer to students and to investors? Well, I think we're different. Uh, very good question. I think we're different in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, I think we're really, we're a bank, and the predominant players in the marketplace or the, the people that uh, purport themselves to be prominent players in the marketplace are not a bank. And being a bank uh, offers a couple of advantages in that our cost of funds are so much lower. When you're funded by a VC firm, uh, their expectations, their return expectations are significantly higher. Uh, and that also drives people to have to be very aggressive regarding growth is concerned. And I think you're seeing some of that play out in the marketplace now with some players, not necessarily in what we specifically do, but in, in personal loans. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we're really not in that situation. The other part of it is, is being part of a bank, although some people might try to paint this in a negative light, we don't really think of it this way, is that there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny. And uh, that regulatory scrutiny really uh, imposes discipline on us to make sure we're doing things the right way. And I think, as, once again, it's coming out right now by these non-bank lenders uh, that uh, things that are being, have been done there are, at the very least, questionable. Uh, so we find that there are actually, uh, from both these, the, the, the people who refinance their loans as well as the people that invest in the loans, they really like the idea that they're dealing with a bank because there are certain connotations or expectations that really are with a bank as opposed to someone that's not nearly as regulated as we are. Mm -hmm. you know, yes. The, the other... The, the other thing that I think that um, uh, people speak to as why they don't want to be a bank is because, you know, there's all these negative connotations of a bank, and those negative connotations tend to be related to big bureaucratic banks. Mm -hmm. you know, we're not big. We're not bureaucratic. We're very small. We probably have 100 employees in the entire bank, uh, and, and in our... In our consumer lending or student lending business or refinance business is probably 50 people, 50 or 60 people. So we have a very flat organizational chart, and we're also very entrepreneurial, and the culture is one of entrepreneurship and innovation. And I think as long as you can maintain a culture like that and you have, you have it within a bank, you really have the best of both worlds. You have the, the low cost of a bank. You have... Uh, the assurance of the regulatory scrutiny, and you have an entrepreneurial environment uh, which allows uh, employees to grow and prosper 
and, and, and do things that are very dynamic. Uh, and so I think that uh, that also leads to I think we have a pretty happy and motivated uh, employee base. So, you know, and, uh, and as I mentioned, as I mentioned, the investors like the idea that we have the regulatory scrutiny and the stability of a bank. And I think a lot of cases we find people really want to invest in our paper as opposed to other other players because we are in fact a bank. Interesting. Um, I want to ask you. So you mentioned uh, the the sort of the the, the regulatory aspect in this, but uh, have you seen any um, other um, synergies between the fact that you are um, the owning a bank and a hedge fund, or is it um, is it something that's given you more of a headache because the regulators really wanted to make sure that these two businesses were very separated? Uh, well, there are certain uh, uh, restrictions and requirements that the regulators place upon us to make sure that we do things at arm's length anytime there's kind of business that's being done at arm's length. And the, the bulk of the business that's done between the bank and the, and the hedge fund really is as a consultant relating to the capital markets uh, executions. So, like we, we when we originate mortgages at the bank, we the the hedge fund or the employees of the hedge fund will act as a consultant uh, in, in selling those loans, maybe in packages or in securitizations to the street or other third parties, and as well as the certainly for the securitizations of the student loans uh, that we've done, the the hedge fund having had a lot of experience, and I think I spoke a little bit about my experience in, in the asset-backed finance area, but other people that work at, at, at the hedge fund as well have a lot of experience in the capital markets, and that's been very helpful and uh, I think a real advantage for us to have the level of sophistication uh, and experience to bring to the securitization process uh, that, that, Westside, that Westside has. Thank you. Um, I now wanted to to move on and ask you a little bit of a sort of um, personal question. Uh, so when 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 you boil it down, this is my view. When when you boil it down, the the claim that um, I want to say all the uh, alternative lenders do is that they measure credits uh, better than banks. Um, yeah, sure. There, there, there is intensive use of technology, but at the end, is their 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 credit models what they claim to be their core assets. Some of the alternative lenders um, use um, data taken from social medias and um, all sorts of sources. Um, what is your what is your uh, your DRB's take on this? Um, do you think that? Um, more data is necessarily better. Uh, do you think that the market is rewarding uh, this kind of alternative lending models? What's what, especially at the light of what's happened recently? What's what's your take? Well, I, well, I think from the standpoint of what the product that we refinance, which is really very high quality uh, borrowers, I think it's 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 really difficult for these. Uh, entities suggesting that big data 
will make a difference in analyzing these credits. Uh, I think, you know, really it's debt-to-income ratio and cash flow and employer and employment are really the very critical factors. I could never say at the very distant margin that that could not be helpful. I mean, more information is always better than less information. So I'm not sure it really relates specifically, nor do they target um, borrower-based at this point. And generally, though, I, I have a difficult time with a lot of things. I mean, I think that uh, uh, my organization has always been very quantitative and data-driven, and, but to, to suggest in some cases what I've heard about where people are trying to go with this and saying things like, you know, first of all, it's untested. And to even backtest this information is very difficult to do because if you can look at difficult times in the markets or just in general the economy, I should say difficult times in the economy, we can go back to 2008, 2009. That's, that's a certain set of circumstances. And then you could go to previous recessions like the uh, uh, ones that took place fundamentally in, in the Midwest and that were oil-related. You know, those are a much different set of circumstances. And I think trying to kind of backtest relating to those situations with the type of data that, first of all, if you're taking it off social media, it didn't even exist at the time. But besides that, it's, it's really very hard because of, you have to have an awful lot of uh, points of reference to go to to get comfortable. And I think that you spoke to us a little bit before about investors relying on different information or quality of product. I mean, for investors to rely on this data that's been unsubstantiated and so questionable in a lot of ways, you know, that's going to be really hard for people to get support on because you you do these uh, securitizations which have senior and junior tranches and getting people to buy those junior tranches and, and take, take the risk of the losses certainly at, on the tails of these things, on the tail end of these things, I think is really problematic. You know, there are things like I, I've read about and uh, where people want to use data points, like what time of the day do you go out and make purchases, suggesting if you make purchases during the day that you don't have a job or the type of job you have is limited because you can only do it at night. I mean, it seems it seems uh, a stretch to me. I mean, there are times when I leave my office just to get a breath of fresh air or clean out my head, and I might walk three or four blocks in New York City and go to a store and pick up a shirt or something like that, does that suggest I, I don't have a day job? Um, you know, there's others that say people that use in applications only use capital, that use capital letters are less likely or, or not as good at credit. And, you know, I have a hard time kind of trying to rely on those things. You know, there, there are fundamental things that are tried and true that I think uh, have st stood the test of time. I think can they be changed? Do I see do I see that something that's been prevalent in the marketplace, the FICO score, uh, being uh, adapted over the course of time? Absolutely. I think they need to make changes and started to make changes in in the FICO scoring. And I think adaptations of that make a lot of sense. But I think the stuff that really is even trying to grab social media information 
you know, there are limitations on that placed upon by the government regarding uh, uh, online lenders using information from social media uh, to judge creditworthiness. I think there are, you know, the, the government has already uh, regulated that, so even Facebook has put some limitations on those things. I think overall, I think that more data is good and technology is allowing you to look at more data, but I think right now it's really at the margin. Thank you. I had not heard the uh, idea of the capital letters before, so that was very enlightening for me. Thank you. Um, I kind of wanted to start from, from what you just mentioned to ask you um, a couple of questions uh, about the industry overall. So we know that um, 2016 has kind of been the, the first year where a bit of the enthusiasm in the space has started to move towards something more cautious. And for, for a lot of the, um, generally, I, I want to say online lenders, uh, raising more capital has been increasingly harder. So do you think that's, that's, that's a, a bad thing because it, it kind of shows that um, the enthusiasm for this, for this new asset class is dying out? Or do you think that simply that's actually positive for the industry because um, after um, a full cycle, uh, it would be a lot easier to see winners and losers? And so companies that did a good job and um, lend money to good credits Will, will will grow and companies that simply um, took advantage of a benign credit environment uh, will be weeded out? Um, <laughs> I think you got to be a little more specific on the question. Well, let, let me try. I think that um, I think all of you say everything you just said has merit to it on, mm -hmm. on one level or another. I think that um, uh, uh, Markets always have shakeouts. There's a shakeout now, obviously, in this particular market, online lending market. You know, it, for a little while, you could go to a conference and there were, you know, five people in someone's garage and they started a new online lending platform and, you know, whatever they were trying to do, you know, they try to beta test it with a few people, get a few dollars and prove their concept and expand it out. That clearly is going to be much harder to do now. I think there'll be consolidation in the industry, as there should be, and there always is the case. Um, I, I think that um, uh, that's a good and bad thing. I think also what's happening is you know, the valuations of all of these business models was really very dramatic and very aggressive. And for investors, there are a lot of people that stayed on the sidelines that thought that this is actually a fundamentally, there are fundamentally good business models within the context of this online lending concept, but, but they question valuations. Now with valuations coming in somewhat, I think you find a lot of players on the sidelines uh, interested in being involved. You know, I think to a certain degree, uh, what really is happening here is people have put different names to this product, but uh, online lending, you know, something that's fundamental to this is that technology is allowing uh, entities to do financings in a way that were never done before. It can be done on a much broader scale, more quickly, and, and the expense can be reduced because of technology. 
And that's that's kind of a, those are sound business concepts that are helpful to make businesses uh, uh, more successful. And I think taking those things and utilizing them in the right way uh, makes makes the concept of online lending one that's going to going to uh, serve the test of time. That it will continue to exist. It won't go out of existence. It's not it's not a fad. Uh, I think, though, as you said, a lot of players on the fringe, smaller players, uh, uh, the more esoteric players are going to have a much harder time. Uh, in our particular space, in refinancing of uh, student borrowers, uh, I think e even in the credit box that we're in now, which is very what I'll call super prime, you know, our, our average borrower has a FICO score of 760, makes $175,000, and has a DTI of 28%, uh, that's the average. I mean, we do lower and we do do higher. But even in that space, there's about $15 billion of new originations every year that fit that. There's about $50 billion of legacy. So I think that there's there will be certainly at least a few players. I don't think that there will be just one player, nor do I think that there will be 20 players. But I think there's room for you know anywhere between three and ten players to be successful in this particular space. Um, I think though you have to be cognizant of the fact that this uh, space is somewhat sensitive to interest rates. So if interest rates were to go up very significantly, it would reduce on some level the uh, not, not dramatic, but on some level would reduce. Well, dramatic, I guess, is subject for interpretation, but it would reduce the opportunity somewhat. And therefore, you know, we, we're, with our background in mortgages, uh, we intend to be a significant player on the online mortgage uh, lending space. And we'll be rolling out, I think, what people will consider a very sophisticated uh, online mortgage lending platform at the end of this year. Gary, um, thank you, thank you very much. Um, it was it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for for your time. This this um, over, basically overview of the of the industry you you gave us was uh, very enlightening. Um, I want to say that I really appreciate uh, finding the the time for for today's call. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you, and anytime I can do something for Wharton, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you once again.